please turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 7. And listen as I read our text for this evening, which is Exodus chapter 7, verses 8 to 13. Exodus chapter 7, verses 8 to 13. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's, Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. This is God's word. Let us ask for God's help as we study it this evening. Oh God, this is a familiar story to many of us. Perhaps we know and understand it already. In that case, may it be a reminder to us, our study tonight. Perhaps we've not been sure what to make of it, in which case, Lord, help us to understand. For all of us, Lord, help us to, by the end of this evening, whether it's new or whether it's a reminder, to get it in our heads and get it in our hearts what is the import and application of this passage. For that end we pray, and it's in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen. As we work our way through Exodus, we are now in the prologue to the famous Ten Plagues narrative. Very few sections of the scripture are as well known even by outsiders as this Ten Plagues narrative. People generally know Jesus died on the cross, Noah brought animals into the ark, and Moses appeared before Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And there are a few things that people know, and the Ten Plagues narrative is one of them. Here we are now, right on the cusp of the Ten Plagues narrative. We are in the prologue, essentially, well, I just read from Exodus 7, 8 to 13, sets up the Ten Plagues narrative. And from next week, we will be right in the Ten Plagues narrative. This section, Exodus 7, 8 to 13, is a microcosm of what is about to happen in the Ten Plagues narrative. Philip Reichen writes, the great confrontation in Exodus was not simply a dispute between Moses and Pharaoh or a conflict between Israel and Egypt, but a battle between God and Satan. In his exposition of the life of Moses, James Boyce explained that this battle pitted Jehovah, the true God, removed Moses in Israel against all the false gods of the Egyptian pantheon backed by a host of fallen angels who had turned from God 
as part of Lucifer's original rebellion. Thus, the Exodus was another engagement in the invisible war that continually rages between heaven and hell. That's what's happening in the whole Ten Plagues narrative. That's what is happening tonight. It will happen on a much larger scale in the Ten Plagues narrative, but that is also what's happening here in this little story that forms a prologue to the Ten Plagues narrative. It is an instance of this invisible war that continually rages between heaven and hell. We see in this passage Moses and Aaron going in the power of the Lord to confront Pharaoh and his sorcerers, as verse 11 calls them, who are operating in the power of the fallen angels who have set themselves up as the gods of Egypt. Contrary to what some argue, I believe it is clear that the sorcerers of Egypt really produced supernatural, demonically empowered phenomena in response to Moses and Aaron's divinely empowered science. Contrary to what some argue, I believe that the Bible teaches that Satan and his minions and followers really can do signs and wonders. And I believe that that is exactly what is happening in this passage before us and what will happen in the early part of the Ten Plagues narratives as the sorcerers copy the first couple of plagues. I have tremendous respect for the late R.C. Sproul. When I listened to a sermon one time in which he argued that the magicians of Egypt did not really turn their staffs into snakes, but that it must have been some kind of sleight of hand to trick. Perhaps, Sproul argued, the magicians had hollow staffs with snakes inside, with caps on them. And when they threw the staffs on the ground, the caps came off and the snakes came out of the hollow staffs. I couldn't believe what I was hearing because it sounded so preposterous to me. Among other things, that would have to presuppose that the sorcerers waited for the time when it just might come in handy <laughs> to have a hollow staff with a snake in it, just to begin criticizing that viewpoint. It sounded so preposterous, I couldn't believe what I was hearing, especially from an esteemed teacher such as R.C. Sproul. But there are actually a number of scholars who take the view that the sorcerers of Egypt did not really turn their staffs into snakes, and that it was some kind of slight and trick. And the reason that these scholars take that view is because they are pre-committed to the idea that Satan and his minions and followers cannot do signs and wonders. And so based on their pre-commitment to that position, they have to then explain a passage like Exodus 7 a different way. So let's begin our study tonight by addressing that view, examining the view that Satan and his minions and followers cannot do signs and wonders. 
I couldn't find the sermon or the quote from R.C. Sproul with respect to this particular passage specifically and the sorcerer's turning of staffs into snakes. But here is Sproul laying the foundation for the view that he held. Quote, if anybody can perform miracles, if a person who's not an agent of divine revelation can perform a miracle, then obviously a miracle cannot certify an agent of revelation. Let me say it again. If a non-agent of revelation can perform a miracle, then a miracle cannot authenticate or certify a bona fide agent of revelation, which would mean that the New Testament's claim to be carrying the authority of God himself because God has certified Christ and the apostles by miracles would be a false claim and a false argument." End quote. It is based on this line of reasoning that Rajesh Jaipal argues thus in solidarity with Sproul. Quote, the majority of evangelicals believe that Satan can perform bona fide miracles. For instance, the magicians of Egypt performed extraordinary acts in their contest with Moses, and those acts are usually attributed to demonic power and influence. However, if Satan can perform a bona fide miracle, how do we know that the Bible is the Word of God? And how do we know that Jesus is the Son of God? The magicians of antiquity claimed to have supernatural powers. They claimed to do magic, but it was all trickery. The magicians of Pharaoh's court pulled all they could from their bag of tricks, but they exhausted their feats in a short time. Moses kept going, however, because Moses was no magician. He had been anointed with the power of God to do what no magician could do. In like manner, Satan can be clever and deceive people, but he cannot do things that only God can do. He cannot do a real miracle." End quote. The logic here then, from Sproul, from Rajesh Jaipal, from all of the scholars that argue along this line, the logic is this, that miracles certify an agent of revelation. Therefore, if someone does a miracle, simply by virtue of the miracle, we know that that person is on God's team. Therefore, beings, whether demons or people who are not on God's team, must not be able to do miracles. That's the way the logic goes. That's what Scrolls are arguing. That's what Rajesh Jai Paul is arguing. That's what all the scholars who argue that this was a sleight of hand trick, that's the line of argumentation that they follow and pursue. Now, if it is, in fact, true that miracles certify an agent of revelation, then it follows what Sproul and company argue. But what, pardon me, but does the Bible teach anywhere that miracles certify an agent of revelation? Sproul also uses the word authenticate. Does the Bible teach anywhere that miracles certify and authenticate an agent of revelation? 
The answer to that question, Contra, Scroll, and company is no. Certainly the Bible teaches that miracles corroborated the apostles' message, but it never teaches that miracles alone confirm or authenticate the apostles' message. Or pardon me, certify, I said the wrong word. It never teaches that miracles alone certify or authenticate the apostles' message. What is the difference between corroborating on the one hand and certifying or authenticating on the other hand? Is this just a matter of semantics? Is this just an arcane, abstract, theological point that we argue about in commentaries that really has no bearing on our lives and the way that we live out the Christian walk? Well, let's explore this. To authenticate means to affirm or prove that something is authentic. To certify something is basically the same idea. Another word used to make this point is validate. Many argue that miracles authenticate, certify, or validate the ministry of anyone who does them. Therefore, the miracles are the verifying authority. Without miracles, a person's message is not authenticated, certified, or validated. Conversely, if someone does miracles, someone's message is true because the miracles say so. And without miracles, according to this line of thinking, you would have to say that the opposite would be true, which is that without miracles, you can't know if someone's message is true. Do you see a problem with this logic? I will be the first to admit that I do not do miracles. <laughs> so if you are looking for a miracle worker, you have come to the wrong church. <laughs> Does that mean that my message may not be certified, authenticated, validated. What about the believers who were scattered because of persecution in Acts chapter 8? Did each and every one of them have to do signs and wonders for their message to be authenticated, certified, or validated as they went about preaching the word, as Acts 8 tells us? Essentially, a very important and a very practical question arises. This is not a mere abstract, archaic theological debate. A very practical question arises. Can we believe someone who is not a miracle worker? Or let me state that the other way. Can we believe everyone who is a miracle worker? These are very, very important practical questions. What does the Bible tell us to look for when evaluating the truthfulness or falsity of a person's message? Miracles? No. Listen to Paul in Galatians 1.8. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. 
So if someone were to summon the visible presence of an angelic being, and they started teaching contrary to the scriptures, should we believe them? No. Listen to the Apostle John in 2 John 1, 10 and 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. The mark of authenticity, certification, and validation of a message is not miracles, biblically speaking, but conformity to the apostles' teaching. Yes, Sproul might say if he were here tonight. True enough, especially in our day and age where we have the closed canon and we know what the apostles' teaching is. But how do we know, or how would they have known so long ago, who was an authentic apostle with whom we may compare our doctrine to? Or with whom we may compare someone else's doctrine to? This is where miracles come in, scroll I say, to distinguish true apostles from false. But do we ever see the apostles boldly appearing, appealing to their miracles as if people should believe simply based on the miracles alone. Of course, there's the famous 2 Corinthians 12, 12, which is supposed to be the clincher for those who hold Sproul's view. But what does it say? The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Notice that while this passage does indicate that true apostles did miracles, it does not necessarily limit miracle working to apostles alone. In other words, it necessarily teaches that all true apostles will do miracles. But it does not necessarily teach that all who do miracles are therefore true apostles. And 2 Corinthians 12, 12 does not present miracles as being the definitive verification, authentication, certification, or validation of a true apostle. In its context in 2 Corinthians, miracles are presented as actually just one more evidence among many presented throughout the entire letter as Paul makes the case for the genuineness of his apostleship. And in fact, this is exactly what corroboration is. To corroborate is to support with evidence or authority to make more certain, according to Merriam-Webster's. The apostles only ever cite miracles as one evidence of their authenticity and validity. They appeal to the Old Testament, first and foremost, in establishing the identity of the Christ. You see them arguing from the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Then they appeal to their publicly acknowledged commission from Christ to teach and to rule in his name. Only then, after having established those things, 
do they appeal to other things such as miracles? And so miracles only corroborate. They're one more piece of evidence in a larger argument with many more evidences toward the certification and authentication and validation of a true apostle. Miracles are never in the scripture presented as the definitive mark of an agent of revelation. When we put all of this together with the fact that Jesus explicitly says in Mark 13, verse 22, and I quote, listen to Jesus, false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders. Jesus explicitly says, let me repeat it in case anyone is still hung up on Sproul's line of thinking. Jesus explicitly says, false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders. In view of Jesus' explicit statement, as well as the lack of concluding airtight evidence for Sproul's view in the rest of the New Testament or anywhere else in the scriptures for that matter, it seems incorrect to conclude that only true apostles could have done miracles. Certainly they did, among other evidences, but they were not necessarily the only ones doing miracles. Therefore, we don't pay attention only to that factor, but also to other things like consistency with the apostles' teaching, as both Paul and John explicitly instruct us to do. Therefore, we should understand Jesus' words the way that they seem on the face. There is the possibility of signs and wonders performed by agents of Satan and demons. And that's what's happening in Exodus chapter 7. That was something of a long excursus because obviously if you hold Sproul's view and I don't deal with it, you're going to have questions in your mind as to the rest of the message tonight. But having established that it is possible for demonic powers to accomplish signs and wonders, now we come back and circle back around to Exodus chapter 7. No Christian disputes that God has power. But the frightening reality that we see in this passage in Exodus is that Satan has power. When I say Satan tonight, I do mean Satan personally, but I also am using him as a representative for all demons, all fallen angels. If I say Satan, you can understand that in a shorthand for Satan's team, so to speak. Okay? Satan has power. This is what we see in this passage as these sorcerers turn staffs into snakes by their secret arts. To be honest with you, this is one of the most frightening things that scripture teaches you. It chills me to think 
that there are evil beings more powerful than humans and sinister to the core, ordinarily invisible to the naked eye, who may bend the laws of nature from time to time. Remember, Satan is not as Halloween costumes portray him, going around in tight red leotards with a cape and a pitchfork. The scripture portrays Satan as an angel of light, who is really, though he masquerades as an angel of light, a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. I have been close enough to what I believe are demonic phenomena, and I have seen close enough the after effects of those who have been tormented by demons that I don't find any playful fun in joking about the devil. Nor do I have any curiosity about exploring with the occult in hopes of coming closer into contact with these beings. The most uncomfortable pastoral situations for me are the situations in which the demonic realm is overtly operative. Satan has power. And for me, that is a scary thought. However, I have to be careful, and we have to be careful, not to embrace a functional dualism. There are several accepted uses of that word, but the one that is in my view this evening is this. Dualism is the religious doctrine that the universe contains opposed powers of good and evil, especially seen as balanced equals. We certainly ought not to embrace a theological dualism in which our theology explicitly views God and Satan as balanced equals. That would be manifestly incorrect and contrary to the scripture to overtly and explicitly believe that. However, we ought not to embrace a functional dualism either, in which we deny with our words that Satan is God's equal, but act functionally in reality as if he is. We will revisit this by way of application at the end. But we come now to the main idea of tonight's message, which is this. God has power, and Satan has power. But God's power swallows up Satan's power. In the passage before us, in Exodus 7, 8 to 13, both God and Satan are putting their power on display. The servants of God, Moses and Aaron, go in the power of the Lord to confront Pharaoh and turn a staff into a snake. And Pharaoh's sorcerers, as verse 11 calls them, those who are operating in the power of the fallen angels who have set themselves up as the gods of Egypt, rise to the challenge by turning their staffs into snakes also. God has power and Satan has power. But then what happens? Look at verse 12. Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. The snakes are not equals. The powers who produced the snakes are not equals. God and Satan are not equals. This is the import of the account that we are studying tonight. This is its significance. God and Satan are not equals. God has power and Satan has power 
but God's power swallows up Satan's power. When we describe God as omnipotent, we don't just mean that he is really strong. We mean that his power has no limits. This is in contrast to every created being, including Satan and demons. The powers of every created being reach their limits somewhere. In the animal kingdom, this is true. The elephant's trunk is not omnipotent. The rhinoceros's sturdy legs, strong as they may be, are not omnipotent. The crocodile's jaws are not omnipotent. The boa constrictor's coils are not omnipotent. A tsunami is not omnipotent. An earthquake is not omnipotent. There are limits to the powers of the everything, every created thing. Likewise, there are limits to the intellect of man and man's energy and capacity to achieve what he plans. There are limits because we are created beings. Likewise, also the demons, those fallen angels who were created by God just as everything else was, there are limits to demons and their power too. In all of the aforementioned examples, there are limits because the power is derived, first of all. Where did the rhino and the human and the demon get their faculties? From outside of themselves, namely from God, the Creator. God exists assay, that is in Himself. We speak about God's aseity. God does not get strength, get nourishment, get power from outside himself. God doesn't need to go to the gas station. God doesn't need to sit down and eat. God does not need to lift weights. God exists assay. In contrast, created beings derive their power. And therefore, they can only derive a subset, obviously, a smaller portion of power from that which is the source. You can't go to the gas station and put more gas in your car than is in the underground tanks. At most, you could derive an equal amount in that case, at the gas station. But realistically, you're going to derive less. So it is with created beings. We have to derive a finite amount. And that is, in fact, what has happened. And so God is omnipotent, meaning not just really strong, but meaning without limits. Whereas created beings, including demons, have limits because the power is derived. So God may as well have said not only to Pharaoh, but also to Pharaoh's gods, what Jesus said to Pilate at his trial. You would have no power at all unless it were given you from above. 
And therefore, when Pharaoh's sorcerers produced snakes by their demonic arts, as Moses and Aaron had done in the power of the Lord, we could well hear Psalm 2 ringing in our ears. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Here are the gods of Egypt arraying themselves against the servants of Yahweh, those anointed for the work of deliverance, taking God on in a contest of strength. But Psalm 2 says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. As Aaron's staff made an afternoon snack of the sorcerer's staffs, we could do well to imagine the Lord just laughing in the heavens. Look how this contest of strength had played out. God had made the first move, demonstrating something of his power. Then the kings of the earth, the rulers, gathered themselves together in all their might, in all their pomp, in all their splendor. Pharaoh, the greatest man in the world at the time, and the gods that he worshipped and bowed himself to. The gods from which he drew strength, the gods that he leaned upon. Here they all are gathering themselves together against Yahweh. They decide to answer by flexing their own power as if they could overcome the Creator. And then it becomes devastatingly clear to the sorcerers that their gods are no match for the God of Israel as Aaron's staff swallows up theirs. And they stand there empty-handed. God has power and Satan has power, yes. But Satan's power as a creature is derived in the first place from the Creator, the way that an elephant's or a human's is. And it is limited, therefore, unlike God who is omnipotent. So God has power and Satan has power, but God's power swallows up Satan's power. This is the main idea of our message tonight. This is the case in Exodus 7, 8 to 13. And as I mentioned earlier, this story is a microcosm of what is about to happen, what is about to unfold in the upcoming 10 plagues narrative. So this is going to be the case in the next number of chapters. We will see a clash of powers, Yahweh's power versus the gods of Egypt. And we will continue to see that God has power and the gods of Egypt have power, but we will see that God's power swallows up the power of the gods of Egypt as Aaron's staff swallowed up the other staffs here in Exodus chapter 7. So let's consider now the application of this idea. And really there is just one. We ought not to embrace any sort of dualism, which is the religious doctrine that the universe contains opposed powers of good and evil, especially seen as balanced equals. As I said earlier, we certainly ought not to embrace a theological dualism, 
in which our theology explicitly views Satan and God as balanced equals. However, we also ought not to embrace a functional dualism, either in which we deny with our words that Satan is God's equal, but act functionally in reality as if he is. And there are two ways, at least two ways, in which we are prone to act with a functional dualism. The first is to give in to fear. When we are faced with the demonic, when we are confronted with the demonic, and we back down when we ought to go forward, then we are functionally acting like dualists. Whatever we profess to believe about the superiority of God over Satan. When we hesitate to do what is right because of demonic opposition. When we hesitate to stand for truth because of demonic opposition. When we hesitate to stand for morality because of demonic opposition. When we hesitate to counsel someone to get involved in someone's life because of demonic opposition. When we hesitate to redemptively draw near to those who need the ministry of the gospel because of demonic opposition and the fear that accompanies that, we are acting as if Satan is equal to God. And that we have something to fear and a reasonable excuse to not engage. Now, to be sure, there is real danger from the demonic. Job was afflicted by demons, to give just one biblical example. Another is Jesus. One of the creepiest things that we read in Scripture, scariest, most disturbing things that we read in Scripture, is Luke 22, 3, which says, Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot. There we are not just speaking about Satan as a figurehead of the powers of evil. Literally the being, Satan, literally entered into Judas. To me, that is terrifying. So when Judas came to arrest Jesus in the garden, the Father gave Jesus into the hands of a demon-possessed man, of a Satan-possessed man. There is real danger posed to the Christian by fallen angels, which are enemies of our souls. And God may not always protect us from their schemes in the here and now. But to go ahead with what is right anyway, and to redemptively draw near to those who need our investment and our involvement, even when there is demonic influence and oppression and activity, to go forward whenever the situation calls for it, is to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, who as 1 Peter 2.23 says, continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We must trust that God has a plan and will work his plan in spite of demonic interference and opposition. 
in fact, often by the very means of demonic interference and opposition, as he did at the cross of Christ Jesus. And we must press ahead in obedience to God's law. God's law is our guide, not our comfort level. So we press forward in obedience to God's law, and like the holy women of old, not fear anything that is frightening. As 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 6 says. The second way that we are in danger of acting like functional dualists is when we act like the demonic realm has anything to offer us. When we begin acting like psychics, fortune tellers, spiritists, tarot cards, Ouija boards, seances, and whatever else has anything to offer us, we are functionally acting as if there are two co-equal powers in this world, and we are trying to hedge our bets by dabbling both in the light and in the darkness. It's unfortunate that I even have to mention this to Christians, but it is a real snare that has caught up Christ's lambs on more than one occasion. Brothers and sisters, the darkness supplies no knowledge or power that God does not possess within his own breast. And if God, your benevolent Father, has deemed it wise to withhold certain knowledge or power from you, then trust him. As a good father withholds fine wine and car keys and guns from his very young children for their own good, so our Heavenly Father has many good things in himself which he withholds because they are not good for us as yet. The demonic realm may promise you access to things otherwise unattainable, but those things that you will receive are as much of a blessing to you as a loaded gun is to a two-year-old. And they come with strings attached. Satan is not out for your well-being. So brothers and sisters, do not fear. Do not give in to fear of the demonic as if Satan is equal to God. Do not seek any benefit from Satan and his powers. Yes, Satan has power, but God's power swallows up Satan's power. Nowhere is this seen in the scripture more clearly than at the cross. As already mentioned, a demon-possessed Judas led a band of soldiers to arrest Jesus in the garden, and the Father did not protect the Son from them in the here and now. Jesus was given over into the hands of Satan, and it was scary. But as Satan did his worst, and crucified the Lord of glory, thinking that he was dealing a death blow to the potentate of time, the omnipotent. God's staff 
was swallowing up Satan's staff, so to speak. As Jesus bled and died, hell cheered, thinking that life was dead. But as Jesus bled and died, heaven also cheered. For what was really happening was, as John Owen puts it, the death of death in the death of Christ. Jesus' death satisfied the demands of the law on behalf of a multitude of sinners that Satan would rather have seen damned. And there was a jailbreak, so to speak, as men and women and boys and girls had pardoned stamped on their criminal record, on their file, and walked out of condemnation into the glorious freedom of the sons and daughters of God. And Christ, he didn't stay dead as Satan had hoped and schemed. But not only was he made alive, but he was exalted to the right hand of the Father, and given the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There was Satan, as staffless as Pharaoh's sorcerers. Well, God's staff stretched out on the couch for an afternoon nap, so to speak, with a contentedly full tummy. Look, Satan has power, but God's power swallows up Satan's power. We see it in Exodus 7, 8 to 13. We see it in the 10 plagues narrative. We see it at the cross. Satan will use his power. Things may be dark in your life for a time, for a while. It may be scary. It may hurt. But look, in the end, God's staff swallows up Satan's. And so, brothers and sisters, trust God and move forward with confidence in God instead of fear of the demonic. And don't act like Satan and his minions have anything to offer you. Trust the Father to provide whatever is needful for you in terms of knowledge and power and whatever else the powers of darkness can promise you. Line up firmly on God's side and entrust yourself entirely to God's power. God has power, and yes, Satan has power, but God's power swallows up Satan's power. Let's sing in response this glorious anthem, In Christ Alone. No power of hell, no scheme of men can ever pluck me from his hand. In Christ alone, number 177 in Hymns of Grace.